1: Welcome to the Web3 Business Podcast, helping you
0: navigate the future of business. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Web3 Business Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for innovative thinkers who want to know what works in the world of Web3. Today, I'm going to be joined by Daniel Tenner. And we're going to explore how to use NFTs to fund a business or to fund a project. If you are an entrepreneur or you're a creator or even a marketer who is thinking about using an NFT project to create funding for some new initiative, I think you're going to find this interview absolutely fascinating. By the way, I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter And if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show. We've got some great content coming your way. Did you know that we can deliver awesome marketing info directly into your inbox? Simply subscribe to our weekly newsletter that comes out three days a week. You won't miss any of the updates going on in the world of social marketing. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Daniel Tanner.
1: Helping you to simplify your Web3 journey. Here is this week's expert
0: guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Daniel Tenner. If you don't know who Daniel is, he's a serial entrepreneur and investor who's passionate about NFTs and Web3. His YouTube channel is called Swambat, and his course is called How to Evaluate NFT Projects. Daniel, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you for having me. I'm very, very well. I am quite well. It's the end of the week. It's Friday, it's in the UK. I know in the, in the U.S. you've had Thanksgiving. I mean, this has been recorded around Thanksgiving. I mean, there's meant to be a big football match today, but I don't, don't really watch that stuff. So I'm just taking just my videos and my NFT stuff, really. That's what, what keeps me passionate these days.
0: Well, that's so cool. And today, Daniel and I are going to explore using the NFTs to fund a business. And what I'm really excited about is first, hearing your backstory, Daniel, how in the world did you get into NFTs? Like, start wherever you want to start. I can't wait to hear your story.
1: Yeah. So basically, so I ran a I ran a business for about 10 years. I started three businesses and the third one was successful. The first two, not so much, but learned a lot as usual from those. I ran the other business with, for 10 years and then I decided I needed a break. And I went on that kind of break. I went to Portugal for a couple of months, did a Vipassana retreat, did six shamanic workshops that year, like spent a month traveling around the South of France with my wife, with a car, like doing kind of road trip, did two burns as well that summer. It was a a pretty uh, sort of like let's get away from things kind of journey. And then it still took a year after that to sort of start to want to do things again. Like I really, I think, needed a break from doing things. And after all that kind of soul searching and all the therapy that I did and so on, I got to this place where I felt like a a, a very strange desire arose in me. I, I wanted to actually make some money. And that might sound very typical, but Previously, I'd always operated from the desire to, like, from the fear of not having enough money. So the desire to actually have something, because I want, I wanted a a bigger house, I want to buy a car, like this kind of positive desire for money was a very new thing for me. And at the time, I looked into, like, because I had started businesses, I was like, oh, should I start another business? And then, (laughs) as I looked into it, I was like, oh my god, like there's so much work to start businesses. Like, like I know because I've done it three times, (laughs) and I know just how much insane work it is. And I just, you know, didn't really want to do that just yet at that point. I thought, well, people who have already some money, like usually they can make more money by investing. Like, you know, that's a thing that people do. So I started looking into into investing. I looked into crypto because it was an area that people talked about for investments. What year was this, just out of curiosity? That was 2021. So I bought some crypto for the first time, like a week before the May 2021 crash. Which was uh, like it was great because it was a fantastic lesson. So like I'd only put a thousand pounds in, like because I like to be somewhat risk averse, and I lost half of that money in like you know the space of a week. And I was like, okay, so the crypto markets do that as well. <laughs> That's an important uh, lesson to learn with a small amount of money rather than thinking it just goes up only. So I spent the whole summer trading numbers on a screen. I didn't know what they were. I didn't know the difference between Bitcoin or Ethereum or Cardano or Solana or any of those things. Then near the end of the summer, a friend of mine had been talking to me about NFTs and bought Apes and stuff like that. And I finally looked into it some more, took the plunge, bought some NFTs. And then that's where the magic happened. That's when I started, like the first thing I realized, like, okay, this is a really powerful technology. Like there's something about the way that is pulling people together to collaborate together. That's like, that, 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 there's something going on here. I can feel some sort of magic happening here. And it's something that I've only felt two other times in the, like in my life. Uh, the first time was when I discovered the internet itself back in the nineties. And then I was a kid in Geneva. Like There was no way for me to really participate in it. Second time was when I discovered Twitter in 2007 and I was like, this is amazing. This is going to change the world. At the time, everybody thought it was ridiculous, but I could feel there was something there. And this third time, I was like, okay, I've entered this NFT space, and within a, a month or two, like I was like, there's something here. This is really important. And the more I dug into the technology of it and the principles, like the, the ideas that created this, this movement of crypto, of Web3, the more I've become convinced that this is the next big tsunami of innovation. And even more than that, I believe that it's going to be bigger than the last two as you know, Web3s have decentralized the power and economic layer of society. I think it's a huge, huge impact. And NFTs are a core part of that by creating this kind of whole layer of digital property that the digital world is going to rely on.
0: Yeah, you and I share a lot of similar views because I remember what it was like when the internet came around and I can't remember the social media wave as well. And I remember having those same feelings that I've had over the last two years as I've come into this space as well. So when you actually started getting into NFTs, Was there a couple of collections that you got into that kind of opened your eyes and and tell us a little bit about that journey?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the first collection that I bought was Lazy Lions, which is something that I somewhat regret at this
0: point. Yeah, I've got a couple of those.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, cause I went and did all the stuff that Lazy Lions were doing around then. Like I was raiding people's Twitter accounts and stuff like that. And it, since then I've had my Twitter account raided and it's not a pleasant experience. I really don't recommend it.
0: Why don't you tell everybody what that means just in case they don't know what that so means? So
1: what they would do is they would find somebody who's tweeted something vaguely related to Lazy Lions, like something about a roar, about cats or about lions or something like that and they would go that person would get like hundreds of replies to their tweets from lazy lions holders posting memes and like pictures of lions and stuff like that some of them just like saying, go buy a lion which is kind of like a bit silly but a bit blunt others like making some kind of twist joke on on whatever they said but the reality like as a receiver of this is that your feed is now flooded with garbage basically and you can't tell the replies that like the stuff that you want to reply to from the other stuff which actually creates annoyance (laughs) on the receiver rather than any kind of positive feelings it might create some awareness but mm, yeah i wouldn't recommend that tactic so that was the project i joined I, i i saw how powerful it was at getting people to collaborate i saw like okay there's something something really interesting going on and it was the key that led me to dig deeper and go down the rabbit hole and start exploring all the stuff happening there.
0: So why don't you bring us up to the present with what you're doing with your YouTube channel and some of the stuff you're doing in partnership with Zen Academy and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, sure. So what became fairly obvious to me about, uh, yeah, I'd say about a month or two, like a month month in, it started to become apparent to me. And a couple of months in, it was apparent enough that I started writing threads about it on Twitter because I saw people writing threads. Yeah, like I've blogged before. I've had a reasonably successful blog. Yeah, I might as well try and write threads now. They're kind of like blogs. And what was apparent to me is that most of these NFT projects are basically startups. Many of them are not very good startups. They're not very well run, and they have all sorts of problems. But effectively, they're projects where there's a group of people that have a vision of something they want to bring into the world, and they raise some kind of funding via selling something, and then now they have a budget and some kind of plans for how they're going to bring this thing into the world, and. The people who gave the money are expecting usually to make more money than they put in. So it's very, very much a startup. My previous business, Grantree, helped tech companies to get government funding. And myself, I've also raised funding. I've been on both sides of the table. I've invested in startups as well. So I'm very familiar with uh, the fundraising process for startups. And it was very apparent to me that this is a new solution to startup funding. I kind of call it the Kickstarter on steroids, which um, can could could help to transform the way startups do fundraising. Um as I like to say like could explode the silicon valley model to the whole world which I think would have huge benefits to everybody because I mean I believe that startups tend to create most of the innovation in the world that they tend to bring most of the cool stuff that we have. Yeah, eventually they turn into large companies that maybe are not as cool but all that stuff comes from startups. So the more startups we have doing crazy stuff around the world,
0: I think the better we end up being. Yeah, so your YouTube channel. What are you doing on that YouTube channel? So
1: I, I was writing threads for quite a while, and then uh, and I was doing a market report and so on. And then I decided, you know what? I kind of like. that that's actually what happened is like I I joined Zen Academy, and that's one of the projects which I'm very pleased that I joined. I got basically access to Zeneca, who's very influential and very connected, and that's worth money. That's a project with real utility. The access to somebody who's very well connected is is utility, and. He ended up connecting me to NASA Academy, who was doing some courses, and they invited me to record a course about how to evaluate NFT projects for investment. And I went to Dubai, I spent seven days filming, and what I learned there was that, oh, I quite enjoyed this filming thing. I like to sit here on camera and be recorded. And on top of that, I can write stuff and put it on a teleprompter and just read it out and sound quite natural, which apparently a lot of people fail, to like it's quite a, quite a rare skill. Since I'm a good writer and I can record on camera and, like, you know, and it looks good and so on, I thought, well, you know, maybe let's give a YouTube channel a start. I'd recorded some YouTube live streams before, uh, but not a proper scripted video. And so I thought, yeah, I mean, that sounds like a fun game. Like, let's see, like, you know, worst comes to the worst. I've learned how to make cool YouTube videos. Best case scenario, like, you know, I've got a successful YouTube channel. That sounds pretty cool to me. And so I've kind of taken all the thinking that I was putting into my threads and now I'm trying to provide it in video formats, which I think is actually more accessible to more people because threads can be quite, they require a lot of patience and attention. It's like text is kind of broken up in little bits. It's more difficult to absorb for most people than videos, I think.
0: Very cool. Well, I suggest everybody check out Swambat, which is the YouTube channel at Swambat.
1: Yeah, and and just to add, what I'm trying to do with a YouTube channel is basically get those ideas about startups, about how to use NFTs for funding startups out there because there's still a very minority view. Most people don't see the world like that. Most people have a very different view of the NFT space at the moment.
0: Well, and that's a great transition to my next question. There's plenty of people listening right now or watching that are a little unsure as to the upside of using NFTs to raise funds. So talk to me a little bit about the unique advantages that NFTs bring to the table when it comes to fundraising when done well.
1: So, I mean, there's advantages on both sides, on the, the, the investor side and on the entrepreneur side. So if we take them separately, starting with uh, the entrepreneurs, I think the biggest advantage is that NFTs don't involve share dilution. One of the worst uh, problems, I think, with the current fundraising model is that it forces people down a certain path right out of the gate if they want to get any funding at all. So in order to raise your seed funds, you already have to sell part of your company. Once you've sold part of your company, you are down that path of going towards either acquisition or IPO. There's no, like, it's kind of, it becomes that, that's the outcome or you fail. So it's it makes it much more difficult to do other outcomes. Some angels can be a bit more flexible than others and they might allow you to run a lifestyle business after they have invested. But in most cases, you, like, you, you have to do this. and it's, Basically, it's no longer your business because you've sold a part of it. With NFTs, you can sell something that is, I believe, a valid investment. If it's constructed correctly and it can go up in value as the business succeeds, um, you can get the funding, but you haven't sold any of the business. It's still your business. It's still entirely owned by you. you. You still can go and raise funds from traditional investors later. That option is not closed off to you, but you've kind of pushed back that decision a little bit later. And that, I think, can make a huge difference to allowing startups a little time to figure out What kind of company they want to be before they're sort of shoved down that path of building a traditionally funded startup that has to find an exit. Another advantage is so it's immediately global. Fundraising usually is very local. You need to go and meet investors in person and so on. It's changing, but very very slowly. I think typically, if you're a London-based startup, you're going to raise funds from London-based investors. If you're a Silicon Valley-based startup, I mean, obviously, you're going to raise funds from there. If you're a startup based in Buenos Aires, um, you might find some funds there. There might be some angel investors, but it's going to be pretty thin on the ground. Whilst with NFTs, with a global fundraising model, as a startup, you could be raising funds from anywhere in the world, based anywhere in the world. Which is why I'm saying it could explode the Silicon Valley model to the rest of the world. Because now there's not as much, like if, if this model takes up, takes off, there's not as much incentive for startups to be located in those startup hubs because they can be delocalized anywhere and they can raise their funds globally from people all over the world. On the investor side, I think there's huge benefits as well. Obviously right now there's some drawbacks like our investor protections and stuff, but the benefit is that because those are inherently liquids right from right from the start, you can like you can exit your position if you decide actually this investment isn't right for me and you actually get something and I've, I've made investments in startups, so has my wife. None of those have returned anything yet. They're still locked up in those businesses, and some were made like you know five years ago or, or more. So they're like they're very liquid. If you think NFTs are liquid, try startup shares. <laughs> Having that liquidity means that you can recycle funds and reinvest them much more quickly. It also means, as an investor, that you're not necessarily committed for the entire journey of the startup all the way to exit. Which you know one of the the startups that I invested in. They did really well. They manufactured a product that was a, a toy for children to learn programming. It was really cool. They got it, the designed, they got it built, they got it in, in front of customers. They sold a whole bunch of them. They got a manufacturing deal. They got a distribution deal. They did pretty well. And then eventually, like you know, a few years in, after a number of successes, a number of milestones checked off, something didn't quite work out, and the business didn't like you know ran out of cash for some reason and had to sell for like you know pennies on the dollar. Pennies on the pound, something like that. And so all investors were wiped out. Now, like as an investor, like you know, I appreciate that I signed up for that as a as an investor when I bought the shares, but it feels kind of unfair and inefficient because I like the bet was actually correct. It's just, you know, how can you predict when you invest in a startup that you know five years down the line, there's gonna be a little hiccup somewhere that means that the business goes down and like has to you know, sell for a fraction of the price to be able to continue operating. And With NFTs, because they're liquid, if you buy into a business and they do relatively well over the next couple of years, at some point you're like, okay, well, I've got a 10x multiple on this. Yes, I think they can go up some more, but, you know, I'm more into early stage. I don't care that much about the later stage. I feel like I've made the right bet here. I'm going to sell now to people who understand that risk at the, the, the second stage and who want to take them on at that point. And so as an investor, you get the money back earlier and then you can reinvest it in more startups because you've got that money back. If I'd received the money that I invested back, I would probably have invested it in other startups, but obviously it's locked up in those startups. So
0: I can't do that. I love this business model and I love the way that you're thinking. It's exactly the reason why I own seven Moonbirds and Proof Collective Pass and a whole bunch of their oddities because I look at this as, and even though they're down quite a bit because we're in this bear market, I look at this as I've got, you know, seven out of 10,000 of these and that eventually I'm really investing in Kevin Rose and what he's trying to build at proof. And I believe that over the long run, these are going to be very valuable. And my hypothesis is I could sell a few of them down the road and potentially recoup all that initial investment. That's kind of how I'm looking at it from an investor perspective. And what I love about this is I would have never gotten deal flow into proof like Andreessen Horowitz did when they invested $50 million. I'm technically not an investor, but I am essentially putting my money my corporate money, if you will, where my mouth is because I believe in this project and I'm choosing to invest in this. And I think, I think it's just a fascinating business model. And sure enough, you know, he's using those funds obviously to build whatever he's building, which we don't really know exactly what he's building. Now there's a lot of NFT projects, Daniel, when we were prepping for this, that have kind of done it maybe not the right way. So give some warnings to those that want to do this about what to avoid because you know you learned this the hard way and i learned this the hard way by investing in projects that have just been run very poorly and what can you say to that about that
1: i, I really want to be clear that just because you invested in those kind of projects doesn't mean like you know every everybody did and because it you know it's, it's very easy to believe that oh it's different you know something's different here i don't fully understand it so i'm gonna go into it but then After a while, you start to get this feeling that wait a minute, what is this project actually building? Like, you know, is there anything actually, anything of value? Is there any actual reason to hold this NFT? I remember I got that feeling with Lazy Lions, and I tried really hard to get them to put some actual utility, like rather than just what I would call Ponzi utility, into the into the NFT, and they weren't interested in that, and that was their choice. That's totally fine. But the point is, a lot of projects that have made waves and that have set patterns in this space happened during what I would call a Ponzi bubble. It was basically a sort of tulip mania of NFTs. It happened over the summer of 2021 and then it was a kind of rebound in January 2022. And the problem with that is that, I mean, you know, bubbles happen. That's part of human nature, human history. We, we do that every once in a while. <laughs> this space is so fresh and so recent. Those projects that succeeded in that period have set patterns that they sort of kind of present as best practices that aren't actually best practices because they're just practices for running basically Ponzi projects during a a bubble. And that might work in that kind of context, but that context is almost certainly not coming back. I mean, I don't believe it's coming
0: back. Yeah, so share some of the things that, Because so many people might accidentally copy one of these people and not realize what not to do.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. So like one meta example is the focus on hype. And you see that very present even now in the NFT space. People still repeat that as advice that founders should be like, you know, on Twitter, building the hype, talking on Twitter spaces every day and so on. And respected people in the NFT space repeat that advice. I think that's absolutely wrong. I mean, you and I have built businesses, you know, like the work of building a business doesn't happen on Twitter. Like there's a lot of work that goes into bootstrapping a business or like even building a business with funding. And yes, maybe there's some perception management, some marketing and so on. But if you're spending all day on Twitter and Twitter spaces, you're not building a business. You're just building hype. And hype is not actually valuable in the long term and it's not sustainable in the long term. So that's one pattern, like, you know, focusing on hype that I really wouldn't encourage. Another one is there's been a lot of price manipulation techniques that got adopted as best patterns. Staking was one that was super popular for quite a while, where they they basically copied, they aped this pattern from Ethereum, where you know in Ethereum it makes sense you stake your Ethereum in order to power the proof of stake algorithm. That so you put your your Ethereum at stake and then you run a validator and then you get rewarded because that's how the network ensures its security. There's a good reason for the staking to be there. In NFTs, usually that got implemented because, well, it kind of restricts supply and therefore it drives price up. So therefore, let's implement staking and let's come up with a reason for why. Well, maybe if you get if you do staking, you earn some tokens. Those are made-up tokens that don't have any value, but you know, people will stake to get the tokens, and then the price of the project will go up. And that's a pattern that again works very well in the middle of the Ponzi bubble. But isn't helpful if you're trying to build a genuine business, you you're kind of wasting your time, like focusing on the floor price, manipulating the floor price rather than actually building something of value there.
0: Just so I understand this one with Moonbirds, Kevin Rose did this thing called nesting, right? Which is kind of like staking and you could earn the longer you've been in the nest. And the reason he said he did it was to try to prevent people from flipping and going in for the long haul on the investment side of thing. Is that the same as what you're talking about? where like like at 60 days and then you know like there's certain rewards that you get if you keep it in the nest and it what it did was it did restrict the amount of available inventory for people to sell in the secondary market but it seems like it was incentivizing people to go long but you're saying that could be a mistake
1: yeah i i I don't i don't think that i mean i think if there is a really genuine reason for staking like for locking up resources like you know staking is putting something at stake yeah like you're risking that thing you're locking it up to like this wasn't
0: staking this was like just agreeing to put it into a certain and we state and not sell
1: it for a while. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: And and it put it into a certain state that that they developed a new contract for it's not really staking. You can still sell it whenever you want. It's just that if you agree to put it into this state and they called it nesting and I've seen others like sneakerheads did this they called it boxing put it in the box, you know, it was just earning the possibility like of future benefits only for people that had it in that state. But it's not true staking, because when you're right, when you're staking, you're moving it into someone else's wallet, right?
1: Yeah. So I mean I and I'm not a majority viewpoint in this, like a lot of people would disagree with me in the NFT space, but I like to call it like I see it. And to me, that like the only purpose of that is to manipulate the flow price, to get people to restrict the supply and to get the price up, which I don't think that should be the focus of a founder. The like just like Public company CEOs shouldn't be spending all their time thinking about the share price. They should be th- thinking about building the company. And similarly, I think NFT project founders shouldn't be thinking about the floor price all the time. They should be thinking about building something of value. But all the all the the like not all, but almost all the patterns that were developed in the bubble. I prefer to call it the bubble, were focused on boosting the floor price and creating that momentum to to get the price to go up to stratospheric heights so that you know people got rich quick before it obviously, eventually came crashing down because there was no actual value being built in many cases.
0: One of the things you and I talked about was this share analog with no legal protections. Can you talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on that?
1: One of the the ways problematic ways that NFTs have been implemented and that they could be implemented as a fundraising model is shares analogs. So that's where basically you say that the NFT is kind of, it's basically like having a share in the business and you're owning a piece of the business because you own the NFT. Uh, This is problematic from a few perspectives. One is that it's illegal probably like the SEC is going to consider that a security. if you're selling unregistered securities to random people on the internet, you're probably breaching securities law. so you don't really want to do that. So if you attach a profit motive like you know the shares pay dividends and stuff like that, you're going to be in hot water with the regulators. Another problem is that NFTs offered no legal protections whatsoever shares, at least, you know, the protections aren't huge (laughs) As as a minority shareholder in the business. You're not like that protected. But at least there's some things that, you know, the business can't really do to screw you over. And if they do sell the business, for example, they have to reward your shares in some kind of way. Whilst with NFTs, there's no such legally binding contracts or anything. Like basically, most of those NFTs, especially those that present themselves as, oh, you're buying an NFT, now you own a piece of the project you're relying on the the honesty the integrity the generosity of the founder which can work and like if you really care about which founders you select i'm not necessarily saying that's necessarily a bad idea but it's a very risky thing and you want to be absolutely certain that your founders have unimpeachable ethics before you 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 invest large amounts of money in that kind of stuff which isn't the case in many many nft projects some high profile nft projects had anonymous founders for most of the time the one very high profile NFT project right now has a founder who's admitted to rugging three projects and they're still running and people are buying this and they, there's no nothing other than the generosity of that founder that gives any value to those NFTs. And the thing is, you know, as businesses grow, especially if those businesses are actually very successful, there's a kind of false belief, I think, that people have that as the business becomes super successful, there's going to be so much money to share that there'll be enough for everybody. Now, I've not been part of a multi-billion dollar exit. That's not part of my life story just yet. But from what I understand, that's not at all what happens. Usually, by the time businesses are that big, there are a lot of stakeholders. There's a like, lot of VCs involved. Everybody wants their slice of the pie. And those people with the preferential treatment and the special agreements and stuff like that will take as much as they possibly can, not just with both hands, but with feet and like everything as well. And you'll, you're lucky to get get away with anything like you know you need to have your legal protections in order to get anything at that stage so nfts that then don't have any legal protections i think are very very at risk there if there's nothing really like forcefully giving the nft value independent of the generosity of the founders because that generosity is going to be and and plus you know businesses change leadership we've seen that with twitter like you know imagine your nft project gets flipped to elon musk or something you think he's going to give a damn about the nft holders He's going to do whatever he wants.
0: Let's talk about if we're going to do fundraising with NFTs, how we do it right. What's your perspective on the right way to use NFTs to raise funds to start up a business or a project?
1: So I think the first thing to do, which is what most NFT projects get wrong right out of the gate, is not to start with the NFT. Like you got to start with what product you're trying to build. Why are you building the product? It's like the business building 101. You start with a problem some kind of, ideally, an itch that you have, an itch that you want to scratch. You figure out some kind of solutions for that. You decide you want to build a business to solve a real problem. And then you might start to think, okay, well, can I fund this with NFTs? And there, I think an an important part of the answer to that question is, can I construct an NFT whose value is actually linked to the success of the business? And that's also something that most projects don't do. They don't actually have a link between the, the NFT and the business. So hence, you know, the project, the, the NFTs are at the mercy of the generosity of the, of the founder in order to have any value. What you really want is an NFT that, even if the founders don't think about the NFT at all and don't spend any time hyping it up, somehow is going to grow in value. The one example that I like to use is if you were building a competitor to Adobe Creative Cloud, for example, now, the Creative Cloud suite costs something like $60 a month per seat or something like that. And if you sold some NFTs for, say, $500 each, and they gave lifetime access to the product suite that you're building, then at some point, that NFT might be worth a lot more than $500 because it's lifetime access for a product that costs you know, $50 a month. That's worth more than $500 a month. And that's independent of whether you as a founder decide to do airdrops and uh, tokens and staking and all these kind of things. It's directly linked to the value of the business. As your business succeeds, the NFT becomes more valuable and your investors are made whole. By the fact that they hold a token, they can then resell to other people who want to buy a lifetime access token at whatever the market price is at that point.
0: By the way, I love this because we've seen this in the event space, right? So we see events starting up like... I saw a Permissionless, which is BlockWorks and Bankless's event out of Florida. So they call them Permies. And as long as you hold this NFT, you get lifetime access to their events. And the idea is this is a way that this NFT is in your wallet. You don't know if they're going to have a second event right? when they first sold these. right? So the idea here is you're hopeful that over time, this is going to be more valuable and that Even if you choose not to go to the event in the future, hopefully it's something that you could resell as the event becomes more popular, right?
1: Yeah. And so that's a really great example also of a hard link. If the permissionless conference is super successful and becomes like, you know, really massive and yearly and so on, having a free ticket to that is worth a fair amount of money, Uh, probably more than was paid for that ticket initially. Like that creates what I like to see in these kind of projects, which is a kind of win 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 situation. The founder wins because they received the funding and they were able to build a product. That they they were able to build a business that is profitable that they're happy with, the investor wins because they put some money in and they got more money back out, and the customer wins because they get a product that didn't exist before. That's what I like to see. That's what I like to invest in, rather than you know win lose type of trades where you buy something like you know a lot of NFT projects during the bubble where like you know the way you made money was by buying it at the right time and then selling it at the top, and then somebody else took the, the other side of that trade and lost a lot of money. And, you know, that's less less interesting to me. I'd rather make my money in a more productive way.
0: What are some other th- examples other than just lifetime access that you think are useful models for people to consider when they're funding an NFT, uh, I mean, a project with NFTs?
1: So lifetime access will work for something where there's subscription cost. You know, software as a service is ideally suited to that. And, you know, let's face it, a lot of startups basically do software as a service. So it's, it's going to be a very common model. Uh, but consumer products don't usually do subscription costs, and they're having a token, having been one of the early founders, could provide some kind of special access. If we take Twitter as an example, I mean now they've got Twitter Blue and stuff like that, but like for many years there was not even Twitter Blue. There was no way to get access to any kind of special features of Twitter. It could be that I think Twitter were yeah they're like they were part of ODO or something at the time, so they had funding from the other startup that they were running, but if they had needed to raise seed funding, they might have sold special access tokens that would allow somebody to get access to features that weren't more widely spread. Maybe somebody might have had the ability to edit their tweet back in 2009 instead of uh, waiting 10 years for that, or would have had some special access or like some special features that make the product better or nicer to use. So that's something that could be sold for consumer products.
0: The Zen Academy, are you part of the 333 Club or you just have a generic one? Because they, they seem to have done that as well, right? Have they? Well, they've got the... The Zen Academy has the three 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 club if I'm not mistaken. I
1: am in the three three three. Yeah. Yeah. It's a but it's a different token than the Genesis.
0: It's, it's past. a different token than the Genesis past and it provides special values to those that are part of that that yeah. others do not get. So is this an example that maybe we should share with people so they understand this?
1: Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I like that one is not quite a subscription part. I think The thing with Zen Academy, I would hesitate to use it yet as a pattern.
0: But it is special access that you only get if you are one of those 333 holders of that exclusive NFT, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But it's access to a person rather than access to the, like what I was describing was more like special access to an app or something. But that's not not a bad quality. It could be access to a person as well. Like maybe if you're the sort of successful, famous founder of this new business, you might say, well, you know, everybody who buys the the initial funding NFT for my new business will get access to me. I'm going to be on this Discord. I will be answering messages and so on. That might be a hard sell right now because a lot of stars have done this and then failed to show up, which you know is not very good for their brand, but I guess they don't care. They have a good enough brand for that. I guess a lot of people would want that kind of access to, to people as well. But it could also be just access to features in the app that aren't so widely available or you know for a company like Apple was selling NFTs for funding you know people in Apple like uh, people who bought Apple stuff like to have this kind of feeling of they're buying some item of luxury and so you could give them an NFT that gives them access to a special iPhone color that nobody else is able to get except if you have the NFT so you can show off the fact that you are one of the early holders of uh, of Apple or that you bought the token from one of the early holders of Apple
0: you know i'm i'm thinking creatively here about How this could be used for people that are doing information products or coaches and consultants. Like imagine if you had a mastermind group and there was only 10 tokens, you know, and the only way to get in is, is to have, and you're leading that group. For example, the only way to get into that group is to hold one of these tokens. Right. And. That could be a special access to an exclusive group that meets weekly, maybe of entrepreneurs or whatever. I'm just thinking creatively, right? And then you've got your main tokens that are not getting access to, you know, for example, the founder or whatever who's, who's doing this knowledge. Maybe they're a book author or something along those lines. I'm just thinking a little creatively out of the box there.
1: By the way, I do want to include, because we mentioned that Academy a fair bit, I do want to include the disclosure that I own 333 Club membership, but I also own 30 Genesis passes that I'm not intending to sell at the moment, but I will at some point. So disclaimer you know like i own those things i'm not selling them right now but i have bought into it at some point i'm not
0: an unbiased that's totally cool and i own i don't own one of the three three threes but i own one of their genesis passes just so i could get into the community and and check out what they're doing are there other things that we could be thinking about if we want to use nfts for fundraising you know we talked about a bunch of stuff. But what? What else?
1: Yeah. So uh, again, it really depends on the business, and I think that's part of the fun to try and figure out for your specific business what is the thing that could be tied into the business. For games, like a lot of games might have uh, items that you can pick up and collect, and there's a kind of collectible angle that comes in that becomes a valid way to fund the business. If you're building a kind of World of Warcraft type thing, an, an MMO or that kind of stuff. You could have some special swords, like, you know, Fortnite makes most of its money from skins that they sell to people. Well, you could have special skins that, are, that you could only buy as part of the initial fundraising round. And those then become extra precious because there's only like, you know, 10,000 of them. And if a game is as popular as Fortnite, there's millions and millions of players. The skins are worth probably more than what you paid for them when you first minted them. Even like nonprofit businesses could look at NFTs as an interesting way to supercharge their fundraising, then it becomes even different. But like a charity, let's say, like, you know, the Red Cross or something, right now, if you donate, you know, $5 a month for something to the Red Cross via some kind of SMS thing and so on, you don't get anything back from that. Just this kind of good feeling that, yeah, I'm donating some money to the Red Cross. If they issued you an NFT, they could link that to the donation in some way, and you can actually make NFTs now. That will automatically charge money every month. That's there's actually a technology to do that now, and the NFT could can track that, and maybe you can evolve and change as you donate more money, and then you have this kind of NFT that you can look at at least, and then later as augmented reality and this kind of stuff comes in, you might be able to display that and say like, hey, like you know, like you know, when somebody visits your house and they have their Apple glasses and so on and on, they look at your wall and they see, oh, there's a little heart pulsating there. Oh, what's that? Oh, well, let me tap on that. Look, it's like you know. A kind of a drawing of all the donations i made to the red cross that's really cool
0: what do you think about what gary vaynerchuk did with VFriends when he originally launched his ten thousand and he gave three years to his conference right so he limited the amount he limited the it's not lifetime access to his conference instead it's just three years right so he being a smart entrepreneur seemed to put a cap on it right so thoughts on that as a smart business model or feedback on that? What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, like part of the problem with NFTs, like, you know, with that mastermind group, for example, is that you'll only really get revenue at the beginning, but you have to provide the service forever. (laughs) And, you know, that doesn't quite work. And people have been sort of brushing that aside by saying, well, royalties will pay for that. But royalties are a bit of a hot debate and stuff. Personally, I don't believe that NFT startups should be charging royalties at all on on their NFTs. I don't think that's appropriate. I think the royalties are for artists, not for those kind of investments. I would call them taxes in the case of investments. And I don't think startups should be taxing their investors. So there is that sort of balance between the short term and long term. For a software as a service, yeah, those lifetime memberships—you won't get that money again. But like, hopefully, you know, if you sold ten thousand of those, hopefully, you're building a software as a service product for more than ten thousand people. And so you'll start to get revenue from people who don't have lifetime memberships at some point, And that's where you're going to build your revenue base. In the meantime, they provided you the initial funding to get to that, like get past that 10,000 customer base. For B2C, you'll make money from the, the, the advertising or the usual thing, or maybe even something else. For conferences or like mastermind group or that sort of stuff, yeah, there's a bit of a question there. Like, how do you do that? I thought about it at some point I thought maybe there can be a process whereby you like the tokens are freely traded but then to actually use the masterclass in some kind of way use at that point you sort of like that that would be a valid way you kind of stake the token and it kind of like gets staked permanently and then at the end of your mastermind it gets burned and then the mastermind contract issues another co- token that goes for sale on auction or whatever and then a new person can join that could be a way to do it so that it's tradable until you actually enter the mastermind process. And then, you know, at that point you, you've chosen to take the mastermind. So as a ticketing kind of thing that could work.
0: Yeah, you know, Tom Billio did this. I happen to have one of his impact theory NFTs and you can get into his course for one year. I don't know exactly how he's monitoring it, but I think it's a detail in the NFT that says, you know, taken or not taken kind of thing you know a a property if you will so after a year you got to pay for it or you're out you know what i mean so i think that that's a really creative solution
1: we're still very early in this you know like people people are still defining those models i think as long as there is a genuine value being created and there's some kind of model like for that value to be distributed to the investors and they it makes sense in that way in a sort of traditional business sort of way like it's great that all, all this experimentation is happening. What I don't like to see is when it's just the Ponzinomics being like pumped up, and there's not actually, like, even if there is Ponzinomics, I can tolerate the Ponzinomics. As long as there is actually a product, there's actual real value being built there. Let's experiment. Let's try lots of different things. If there's nothing being built but hype, then I don't know. Like you know, with, with you know, we take Moonbirds that you mentioned. Like you know, there's definitely hype going on there. There's definitely Ponziomics. I mean, I I would call it Ponzinomics, There's the nesting and so on. But I like you know i I've been in the startup space for quite a while as well. Like I remember Dig. I used Dig back in the day, and like I have some trust that Kevin Rose is trying genuinely trying to build something there. So, okay, let's see what what happens there. What kind of stuff he builds because I imagine he's trying to build something that's going to have value that's going to generate like there's going create a real business there, which is unfortunately more than most NFT projects are doing at the moment.
0: Do me a favor and put on your future cap, you know, think as a futurist, like where do you see this all going? Like in maybe five years or whatever, where do you think we're going to be with all this? Well, what I'm hoping for and what I'm working
1: towards, I'm still kind of defining the way I'm going to implement that vision is that I want to see NFTs become like not quite replaced, but largely displace angel fundraising as the means by which startups get funding. Wow. I think they're better in almost every way for both investors and for startups and i think once the sort of ponzi bubble smell goes away from the from the nft space probably we'll start to use those and then angels will come and meet them because they they want to invest wherever the startups are i'm hoping that where we start that where we are in 5 years is a world where a startup can get started somewhere in the middle of nowhere like with no act, no traditional access to to funding is able to sell a bunch of nfts to raise the funding is able to then deliver, build some cool new innovation, maybe much more cost effectively than a startup base in San Francisco, for example, which, as we know, costs like you know an arm and a leg just to you know open your window, and then delivers this innovation to the world. And we sort of see this Silicon Valley model expanded to the whole world. And this model has created huge amounts of value for for people, for us. And it's created all the big businesses that the world depends on. is it's, it's created enormous amounts of, of not just wealth, but like utility for us from google from whatever you're using to watch this video or listen to this like there's multiple startups that had to exist in order for this to appear there
0: Very cool. Daniel, if people want to check you out and learn more about you, do you have a preferred social platform? And also, do you have a website or YouTube or wherever you want to send them? Where do you want to send them?
1: Yes. So the website is swombat.io, which hopefully by the time this comes out, I'll have updated a little bit. I haven't even put my YouTube on there yet. Where I'm trying to build my presence right now is YouTube. So that's where all the content is going. And I'm on Twitter at swombat. And I do post hopefully interesting thoughts there. But YouTube is where I'm trying to build uh, more of my presence at the moment.
0: Daniel Tenner, a.k.a. Swambat. Thank you so much for coming on and answering all my questions today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com C50. And if you're new to the show, be sure to follow us. And would you let your friends know about this show? I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelsner on Twitter. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Web3 Business Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may Web3 continue to change your world.
1: The Web3 Business Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. The information provided in the Web3 Business Podcast is provided solely for educational purposes. Do not treat what you hear as investment, trading, or financial advice. Do your own research.
0: Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.